Hi, this is Brent Barber, the founding director of the Bicycle Film Festival, and this is Resonance FM. Ride on until the break of dawn, because you don't stop. Uh-uh. That's right. This is the bike show on Resonance it's FM. A, a My race. name is uh, Jack Thurston. I'm not quite sure what was happening there, but uh, this <laughs> this is the penultimate um, edition of the bike show in the current season, and it's a bit of a corker, I think, um, because we are looking at uh, the Ross which is the uh, famous stage race of the Republic of Ireland. And if any of you have been following the return to competitive cycle racing of Lance Armstrong, um, you will know that he has announced that he's going to be competing in uh, the Tour of Ireland. But if anyone knows anything about cycle racing in Ireland, they'll know that the Tour of Ireland isn't the race to do. The race to do is the Ross. And we're going to be finding out why, looking at the Ross um, in the past and one of the legendary characters of cycle sport um, in Ireland or, in fact, cycle sport throughout the world, uh, an amazing man called Mick Murphy. And we're going to be taking a look at his life um, through the work of Peter Woods, who we're going to be talking to in just a minute. But um, to uh, fill you in on the Ross, I went and spoke with John Herity, who is director sportif of uh, the Rafa Condor team and previously he was director sportive of the recycling.co.uk team which came to dominate the Ross in the last 10 years. He was a professional cycle racer himself although he never competed in the Ross. Anyway he's become quite a legend um, over, over in Ireland because of the success of his teams and I asked him to give me the lowdown on what the Ross was all about. It's a, a seven-day race that uh, takes place in, in Southern Ireland. Usually starts in uh, you know, the Dublin region um, and basically goes either takes a clockwise or onto classic, you know, clockwise route around uh, around Ireland. Um, stages uh, usually from around about 150 to 200 kilometres long, so sort of 100, you know, 90 miles to 120 over different terrain but um, they'll always uh, always include uh, what we call dual cabbageways over there which is the very very small roads with the, the grass, grass down the middle of them uh, always a big feature of the race at some point um, and the roads are extremely heavy um, so the distances uh, in themselves well even the distances is legendary in the RAS you might say you're going to be doing 150 kilometres at the end of the day you'll find out you've done 175 so, so some of these measuring stick over there is not quite the same length as ours You've managed the most successful teams in the recent history of the Ross. When you first went out there to, uh, to, to manage a team, what was your strategy? Obviously to win the race, but um, it was to try and beat the county teams. There's a race within a race within the Ross, so you've, you've, you've got the international teams that uh, you know, are taking part, but there's also this other competition that goes on within the RAS for the best county team as well so you, you, you have this situation where you, you'll, you'll have a your, the breakaway of the day has been formed and you think that is it in, in the normal race strategies that you, uh, you know, you'd see anywhere else in the world that would be it for that break for the day there's no way it, it would come back but all of a sudden you'd see three or four county teams driving the bunch along to try and bring this break back. And you couldn't work. It took me probably half the race to work out what was going on because you'd kind of dismiss this second tier competition that was it and dismiss it at your peril, I can tell you now, because it does affect the way that the race is ridden. It certainly did in those, you know, probably about eight years ago when it was my first, uh, first time over there. 
and what happens is they, they will then drive it because there's a county rider that sneaked into that break and is actually gaining time on the bunch and if they don't bring that breakaway back you know they're going to use the county competition so it's kind of a race within a race and you, you have to keep your eye on you know that side of it the other secret is because it's quite a long race in, in so much that most international state races now at that level are over five days and this is over seven it's only five riders so it's extremely difficult to control the race for the whole week in fact you can, it's impossible to do so really so the secret is to try and stay in contention for the first three or four days without actually taking the lead and then try and put in a you know a strong performance look at the stages and put in a strong performance towards the end of the race so that you take the lead towards the latter stages of it and then you you've got a chance of controlling the bunch uh, in much the way you, know, you you see the tour de france controlled by by the major teams as well but they've got nine riders with five and you've got the you know the yellow jersey that only gives you four riders to actually work with and it's bound to be one of them not going too well so you've actually only got three riders to try and work with very very difficult race to control what makes it Great for spectators, but an absolute nightmare for team managers. What kind of a rider does well? One that can accept the race for what it is. They have to realise that it's not like a normal race. And if they try and start to apply the same tactics and logic almost that they would use in any other international stage race around the world, um, then they're going to come and stop. They'll potentially get frustrated by it and it'll actually ruin the race. So that tends to be a strategy of mine when I when I go with riders I let them know beforehand and fortunately I work for the past few years I've worked with the same group of riders so they already know you know what the race is like and uh, what they have to do and basically we adopt similar tactics every year despite what the Irish think we've got conspiracy theories to the end of the end of the world that what you're doing this year John you know you know what you're up to what stage you're going for this year John you know it's Man, it's no wonder the peace process took so long over there to work out if they think there's a conspiracy from any team that I bring over. Do you think that local people have an affinity for cycling? They have an affinity for the RAS, definitely. Um, I think you know, it's a, a little bit like some of Northern Europe where the, the bicycle is um, seen as a means of transport for people in the countryside and so on. And more so than the UK, Irish, Irish, Irish people still see that, and you know it's a form of transport. And yeah, if you're good, you'll you, you could ride the RAS. And what would you pick out as sort of greatest performance that you've witnessed um, by a rider? It was probably that first victory of Paul Manning's um, when, as a, we the, the the officials. I would say conspired against us. Um, yes, he did have a small misdemeanour where he got a handsling from a from a teammate, but that's never penalised normally, you know, at all. Paul's a very steady character. Didn't complain at the finish. He allowed me to put our case to the commissaires in the correct way, and um, but I, I warned him beforehand. There's no way they're going to change their mind, you know. So we said, okay, we'll leave it. There's a stage in two days' time. When it goes off these mountains, we're just going to smash him. We're going to smash him to pieces in such a way that they can't, you know, they can't throw anything like that. And that's what inspired Paul really that day. He, um, you know, we waited and we waited, and there was his final climb uh, just before the finish, and uh, he attacked up there and he, well, he just smashed the field to pieces. And um, they basically took their hats off to us at the end of it. They just said, you know, that was amazing, well done. So in that respect, that's probably the most. You know, outstanding performance but 
from a funny one a funny one I once took over a team the first team I ever took over to the RAS I took six riders even though there was only five allowed to race because I couldn't I didn't know who to drop so I decided that I'd take all six we'd pay for six to go around the race but one of them would train he'd go off before the stages and um, this uh, no, I'll name him Wayne Randall his name was who's got kind of legendary status in, uh, in the UK anyway for his, the mammoth sort of bike rides that he does he thinks nothing of getting on his bike and riding for 130 miles to a cafe and then coming back not dissimilar to some of the stories you hear of riders in the RAS anyway in the end I didn't select Wayne and uh, he used to set off before the race started following the race route but once the bunch passed him, he, had to, he, he would join in behind, and the commissaires were going mad. They were like saying, you got to get him out, got to get him out of the race. Pull him out, John, pull him out, get, get him out. This went on for two or three days, and I said to Wayne, look, you either, you either stop this, Wayne, or you know, I'm going to have to send you home. Oh, it's all right, so I'm just training. I said, Wayne, you can't do it. It's not within the laws. Of the... Anyway, on the fourth day, it seems the police were having difficulty controlling the race. It got spread over such a, you know, a, a large envelope of, of time, it was like 20 minutes gaps, that they were, they were struggling to control it. So in the end, they actually came up to me and asked if Wayne would help with the back groups. So we ended up calling the Sheepdog, uh, or the, the, the name that they gave him. So when, they, um, when, the, when these tail end Charlies, if you like to call them, the, small, you know, the smaller groups came together, they were, they were all looking out towards the end of the stage, the last 40 miles of the stage, they were all looking out for Wayne, the Sheepdog, to bring them all in. And that was it. They were, they were all saying, there's Wayne, boys, he's here, he's there, he's there, he's there. Hey, Wayne, how are you? And that was it. Wayne would then tow the back groups in as a to help the police basically control the back end of the race and in fairness it wasn't affecting the overall classification of the race whatsoever it just enabled them to, to control a bit of the race but through what, Wayne was getting repaid every night in pints of Guinness he was like he was there to train but was drinking about eight pints of Guinness every single night from all these riders that were so pleased that they'd helped him join the stage so eight pints of Guinness a night and Wayne's like riding 110 mile stages the next day so I don't think he gained much <laughs> from that race to be quite honest apart from you know, lifting his own legendary status. That was John Herity there, the um, director sportive of um, Rapa Condor, talking about his days um, as a director sportive for the recycling.co.uk team um, and his uh, successes at the Ross. And joining me on the line um, from Ireland is Peter Woods. Hi, Peter. C- can you hear us? Yeah. Very good. Well, we can we can uh, we can we can hear you as well. Um, and you're a documentary radio producer, and you've made what I think is a really terrific um, piece of uh, documentary uh, radio about one of the legendary riders um, in Ross history. Which I, I think his is the kind of story which accounts for the kind of thing that uh, John was talking about there. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Mick Murphy, and then we'll go to a little excerpt from uh, the documentary itself. Yeah, yeah, he, um, he, he had a lot of different nicknames. I think that it's often the best way to describe him. He was, he was called Mila Minnick Murphy, and he was called um, the Iron Man for reasons that have come obvious in the documentary. And he was called the Clay Pigeon because he fell that many times. He said he couldn't be killed. But when I asked him how he, how, what he wanted to be called or how he described himself, he said he called himself a convict of the road um, because as a cyclist he always harked back to the really early days of the Tour de France and um, 
cyclists like Maurice Garin, who were on the first tour and who, who, according to Mick, was sold by his father for, to a chimney sweep for a bucket of cheese. Um, his hero would be people like uh, Charlie Gall was his hero. And in his own life, he, he shares um, some of the things with Charlie Gall um, so in that Mick became a recluse. He disappeared off the scene for a long time. Um, he only really ever won one major race. He won the Ross in 1958 and um he basically won it single-handedly he was in a team with one other with one cyclist gene mangan who had some experience but the rest of his team the Kerry team that year were like himself it was their first ross and he came out of nowhere to win it and he his his when i when i i don't even know when i first heard of him his his achievements were legendary so 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 well known or so much talked about as opposed to maybe written down that they almost became um, beyond belief like um on the i think it's the third day of the race his bicycle his bicycle breaks down and he chased a farmer down the road and knocked the farmer off his bicycle and took an ordinary bicycle off the farmer and chased the peloton from Glanmire into Cork. Well, it's the it's the stuff of legend. Yeah. Um, let's 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 just um, treat uh, the listeners to one of the opening sections from um, your radio documentary. It's a, a, a two-minute clip coming out now. Stay on the line with us, please, Peter. It took me years to get to this place. I don't know where I first heard of Mick Murphy. It might have been in a pub somewhere or on a building site in London. But all of this was pure fenioct to me. And that's why the two of us came down here to find him. Is, is it going to rain? Probably. It's giving rain anyway. Can we park the car on the mountain? We oh. park up now by the side of it. I don't need any air. Today is the 25th of May and McMurphy, acrobat, fire eater, strongman, street performer, bricklayer, spalpeen, and most of all cyclist, is going back for the first time in 46 years to the place he made his name, the Ross. Is, do you know that place, the Mom? Well, uh, I raced in places about three times, four times. The stories I'd heard about him had mostly got to do with his win in the 1958 Ross. It said he trained with weights he made himself from stone. See? The reason now I don't want see, for those people calling, you can do nothing. You get me? He lived in the lair in the woods in North Cork. I wouldn't be able to do nothing. Oh, oh yes, I have to put it on. He drank cow's blood. Are you all right there now? Do you want to straighten up a bit or anything? He rode for four days with a broken collarbone. No, I'm great now, I'm great. Yeah. He made a living as a circus performer, balancing ladders on his chin. So come here, are you excited about today? And eating oh, fire. It's great, sure, it's great, see, because, you know, do you get me? Come yeah. here, we head off soon, right? Oh, yes, yes. So, Peter, what made you uh, try and track down this living legend? Um, you know, you always wanted to make like, um, to me, I make lots of different documentaries, but I always wanted to make one that would be kind of definitive, a, a sports program. And it, when you hear stories about somebody like him, he seemed larger than life, but the story seemed 
so fantastical and the summer before I eventually got him I was sitting in a pub in Kerry which is the part of Ireland he comes from indeed where he comes from is one of the stage finishes this year in the Ross and he and um, there were a group of people talking about a, a cyclist called Johnny Drum who was also part of that group of cyclists a bit later than Mick and who died tragically um, in, in, in an accident and I mentioned Mick Murphy, and I was kind of in one of these places soon after the smoking ban, um, a pub called Sheila Prenderville late at night, no lights on. You had to knock on the door and be known to get in. And when I mentioned him, there was sort of silence, and uh, the conversation completely shifted, and people were talking about him in awe, and they said, maybe he's gone, like, maybe he's gone crazy. Maybe he's disappeared to England. He never came back. Uh, some people are saying he's still living down there at the back of the hill, and and it became one of those things you'd nearly see at the, the start of a, a film. And actually, when we did go, myself and Liam O'Brien, my colleague, who made the program with me, went to look for him. We went into a pub and we said he he lives in this place called Glebe and we're looking for McMurphy where and we're looking he lives in Glebe and the barman said oh yeah we call that murder and I said what do you mean you call it murder and he said oh, it's murder to get to and and that was the kind of thing that it's one of those stories where there were so many obstacles in the way that whether we got him or not there was always a story there anyway and how did you convince him to talk to you pardon. How, how did you convince him to talk to you? Um, it, it wasn't as difficult. A lot of people had gone down, apparently, and tried to get him to talk, but it wasn't as all difficult. I had made a, a program or a, a with a friend of mine who's a mountaineer, and he climbed a mountain with uh, Shea Hanlon, who was another of the, the great heroes of the Ross and won it four times, um, but more of a, um, a great great cyclist himself and great story. And Shea remembered when he was 19 racing against Mick, and Mick passing him and throwing, um, uh, Shea said a lump of cheese at him. And apparently Mick had heard this program and it was his bottle. And Mick's bottle could contain anything. Like he, he had a diet. This stuff is true about him. He did drink cow's blood and he did train with stones and that. Um, with, he made a gym out of himself out of stones. And so, um, but, but when I arrived there and when I went to talk to him, it's a, um, through a photographer actually who knew him, Kieran. Kieran Murray actually met him and because we're standing in the middle of the field talking and I knew who Charlie Gall was and I knew who Jacques Anquetil was and, and, um, like, and as a matter of fact he'd worked in London and he worked in Germany as I did myself he worked as a bricklayer and I'd worked as a hard carrier and we just hit it off straight away I suppose because it's it's you get very close to him in the in the documentary, and I'd really recommend everybody um, who's listening to this show to go and listen to the documentary because it is out there on the RTE um, website, which is the the station that it was broadcast on. And um, you won some awards for it, right? Yeah. yeah, we won we won a couple of awards for it. We won an award, a New York Sports Award, and um, it almost won a finished very high up, almost won a pre rope and different different things, but like. But it stands by itself. Yeah, you yeah, know yourself yeah. like, like you do your work, and they're not important. Like what's really important is that that you actually get somebody on tape. Oh, absolutely. Who had, to my mind anyway, who has a brilliant sense of himself, who is a stunning storyteller because um, I, he knew what I wanted. What I wanted was to get to the end of the story. What I wanted was to get to the final stage, which was from Sligo to Dublin. And, he, and actually, when he was when we were speaking, he kept talking to me about everything else, about 
um, Charlie Gall about Onkatil about Irish American athletes of the 20s and 30s about working as a card carrier in London about being a bricklayer in Germany about being an acrobat and I, he'd say to me where were we and I'd say we were in Sligo and he'd say we'll get there yet <laughs> and, and so, so he what? even had that kind of you know, like how to delay a story, yeah, how to, yeah. what the punchline was, everything. Like well, that. let's hear an, another short uh, clip of Mick Murphy talking about uh, the, a particular moment during the race, which I think captures, you know, really one of the things that is particularly interesting and, and I, I think why you'd have to put him up there amongst those greats, amongst the, the, the greats of the Grand Tours, um, even though, you know, he was a a lesser character in terms of, um, you know, the level of his um, sporting accomplishment. But um, let's just uh, have, a lis- have a listen to this. Cycle racing is about attacking. I decided I attacked before Killarney. And I jumped clear. I let through Killarney. And they caught me in the grotto. And Dublin attacked in waves. They attacked in waves all the way to Tralee. And I would already attack. I could hear them coming in the... In, in the slush of the water, they attacked in waves, and I, I, I went to the attack and jumped away myself. And I went to the attack, David, I read one, and come into Bally City, I knew I was safe. And about a mile outside the town, I stood up and on the handlebars, I saved the day. So, I mean, I mean, I think anyone who is an aficionado of cycle racing would love that opening statement. Cycle racing is about attacking. That's all he knew was that uh, he, he wouldn't have been like uh, the Dublin team that came along in the 60s. Uh, he couldn't cope with them because tactically they, they raced as a t- they raced tactically, where he, whereas he was an individual. And um, that's all he knew was to attack. Like at a later point in it, he said he went up to the bedroom and he pulled the wallpaper before the last stage off the wall in the bedroom and he wrote all over the wall, attack in the morning, attack in the morning. And it gives the intimation that he, he wrote with his own blood on the wall, or is that, or is that my imagination getting... Yeah, and he, he would have had, like, well, he would have had, like, in that race, and he, he had a fall where he broke his collarbone, and he ended up in the Bon Secure, I think, hospital in Tralee, and um, he, he, he was in that much pain, he'd hallucinated that they were body snatchers, and um, that it was Burke and Hare, the body snatchers, and they were going to take his body, so he escaped through the, through the window, and the next morning, you can actually, I mean, Tom Daly's who wrote the kind of a fine book, a fine history book of the Ross, and there's a great picture in it of him um, being strapped to his bicycle, which he was, and, and pushed off the next morning, and he cycled through the pain again for the next four days until he won. And that was with a broken collarbone. Amazing, yeah, really amazing. Man. But the, 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 the Ross, generally, it is the race of, of the island, of Ireland, isn't it? I mean, it re- it's not the Tour of Ireland. I mean, we're hearing a lot about the Tour of Ireland because Lance is doing it, but it's the Ross that has the, the tradition. Yeah, the Ross is in, um, goes back to 1953, I suppose. I think was the first was the first two-day race. And yeah, it has. Uh, it, it, w- it would have more the old thing. Like it, w- it was cycling in the 50s and early 60s 
was a massive spectator sport. So there's great memories of that. And, and as was referred to there, which doesn't really happen as much now, but the old county teams and loyalties that people would have and all of that, like the, like the Ross would be um, completely different on that level and would be still looked forward to and welcomed through towns. And like that stage now this year from, from Cove, I think it's the third stage this year, from Cove and Cork to Carisabine and Kerry, where, where Mick is from, and across Comacista, which would be one of his great mountains, um, and, and would probably explode the tour open on that day. So it, it, it still maintains great possibilities as well, and all the lore and the stories and everything else about it. I like going out to watch cycle racing on the continent. I'm off to the uh, Tour of Flanders in yeah. a few weeks' time, and I've been to quite a few um, Paris-Roubaix races, as well as uh, watch the Tour de France. I've never seen La Vuelta or the Giro, but is, is the Ross a, a cycle race that's worth traveling for from another country to go and visit, or is it something that, you know, just watch it if it comes past your house? Um, oh, but well, no, I would say, like, in, any race on that level is worth traveling for. Like, in, in my imagination, like, I'm with you on those, like, the, the Tour of Flanders or the Paris-Roubaix, like, to me, were like, they, they would be, like, if you if you compare them to Mercy or the Vuelta or even the Giro, which is a great great race, and isn't to take anything away from that or the Tour de France, they're like battles in the First World War. Um, you know, to get to get over those roads, to get up the Koppenberg, to, to to get across those cobbles, to get into that velodrome, to do those to do those laps. Like and I, from when I was growing up, like I have vivid pictures in my in my memory of Sean Kelly mud splattered winning those races. Like they're they're like dream races to win and on some level um the tour the the ross is probably closer to those than anything else because of the culture that which which i wouldn't make the comparison between the flandrin culture in the because of the the absolute loyalty they have to it but in the in the sort of places and people and the surroundings and indeed some of the roads and all of that, then I would be closer to those sort of northern European races, and sometimes you hope to God it's raining. All right, well, Peter, thanks very much for joining us. We've, we're almost out of time at this point in the show, um, but I'll put a link to your excellent documentary um, from the Bike Show's website, and um, while we're not going to have time for the promised bicycle rock opera, um, we are going to have a moment to hear what John Herity said when I asked him if it was ever possible to compare the Tour of Britain, which is our premier stage race, with the Ross. One's friendly, one isn't. It's as simple as that. The Ross is very, very friendly. The Tour of Britain is not friendly in any way, shape or form. It's, um, it's a race that is uh, extremely well organised. I'm not, you know, not arguing about that. Um, and if you like, the infrastructure that goes around it is pretty flashy and so on. But there's just something about the Ross that I don't think the Tour of Britain will ever be able to create because I don't think it'll exist for long enough with one organiser uh, in charge of it that will get that... Um, you know, get that identity with your general public, and that's what you're after. That's what the RAS has got. It touches the hearts, minds of uh, you know, the general public in Ireland, the non-cyclist, and I don't think you'll ever get that in uh, in the UK. Why not? I don't think we're. I don't think we. I don't think we want it. I don't think we're 
I don't think English people, British people, you know, want it. It's, it's seen more as an inconvenience, whereas, whereas Ireland, they, you know, it's it's celebrated. It's uh, they they want to talk about it in the bars that evening. It's it's part of their culture, and um, you know, it's an honour for them to have the race in their town. They don't care. They've been stopped for 20 minutes, half an hour, waiting at the side of the road. You know, the pace of life in Ireland is it's those that have been there will know it's it tends to be a little bit slower than it is over here. I, even that's changed. It's changing a little bit. Even I've noticed that. But generally speaking, that still applies. So you know, a farmer that's got to stop, you know, at the side of the road with his tractors, 20 minutes to watch the race go by, he's not bothered. He'd be he'd be talking with somebody in the bar that night over his Guinness about the race and proud that yet again the the, you know, the rass has come past the end of his road, the end of his farm, and his cows have been you know late for milking as a as a result of it. Well, that was John Herity there ending our feature this week on the Ross. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tolerating the audio quality problems that we had during that phone call there with Peter Woods. Not quite sure what was causing the problem there, but um, we'll get the engineers here at Resonance to look into it. If you're taking part in No Bike Week, I wonder how it's going. I hope it's going okay. I'm finding it a bit tricky. I did a lot of walking yesterday and today I'm uh, riding the bus because it's raining. And um, if you're not taking part in non-bike week, well, that's fine too. Enjoy your cycling and tune in to The Bike Show next week on Resonance FM 104.4. Until then, chapeau.